Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Continuing our study of the Assyrian Tree of Life, tracing the origins of Jewish monotheism and Greek philosophy by Dr. Simo Parpola of the University of Helsinki. Previously, in an f- earlier episode, we did part one and two of this fabulous essay that is 20% text and 80% footnotes, and my favorite way to look at studies. And uh, here we're going to wrap it up. Of course, I have not covered every detail of this paper, as I usually focus on the points of interest, and I encourage you to read the original source material yourself and study it in depth. The Tree and Mesopotamian Religion and Philosophy The Birth of the Gods in Enuma Elish In Enuma Elish, the narrator, having related the birth of Anu, mysteriously continues, and Anu generated Nudimud, which is the same as Ea, Ea, the Ea name, his likeness. This can only be a reference to the fact that the mystical numbers of these two gods, one and sixty, were written in the same sign, and indicates that the composer of the epic conceived the birth of the gods as a mathematical process which is fascinating when we remember this is the earliest recorded civilization that has such a developed system of theology and theogony um, and led to the development of other ancient Near Eastern cultures like Phoenicia, Egypt, and of course Israel. On the surface, of course, the theogony of Enuma Elish. (laughs) Theogony, that's a word usually only I use in my writing, but looks like this fellow's on the same track as me. The theogony of Enuma Elish is presented in terms of human reproduction. As the example just quoted shows, however, it did involve more than just one level of meaning. In fact, the curious sequence of births presented in Tablet 1, 1 1-15, makes much better sense when it is rephrased mathematically as follows. But first note, the metaphysical propositions of Tantra are stated in very similar terms to that of human reproduction. But the sexual allegory is taken much further. Reality in its primordial state is represented as consisting of two principles, male and female. These equal Apsu and Tiamat, so deeply joined in bliss that they are unaware of their differences and beyond time. Slowly, consciousness, Mumu, awakens and the pair become aware of their distinction, Lamu and Lahamu. The female objective Kishar, separates from the male subject, Ashur, and begins the sacred dance which weaves the fabric of the world. It is clear that this allegory is strongly implicit in Enuma Elish, too, but the phrasing of the text is kept intentionally vague to allow other interpretations as well, including misinterpretations. The idea of an inverted tree, see the figure above, Representing a manifestation of the cosmos from a single transcendent source, Brahman, is already attested in the earliest Indian scriptures, the Vedas and the Upanishads, circa 900 to 500 BC. This inverted tree is not derived from the Assyrian tree. Its visualization as the fig tree, Asvatha, links it with the Harapan sacred tree motif, 
suggesting that the basic doctrines of the tree had already spread to India by the early 3rd millennium BC by a proto-Elamite intermediaries. When the primordial state of undifferentiated unity, Apsu plus Mumu plus Tiamat, in which nothing existed, came to an end, nothingness was replaced by the binary system of oppositions, Lamu and Lahamu, and the infinite universe, Anshar and Ashur, and its negative counterpart, Kishar. Ashur emanated heaven, Anu, as his primary manifestation to mirror his existence to the world. Thus rephrased, the passage comes very close to Kabbalistic and Neoplatonic metaphysics. Note the way in which the unity of Apsu, Momu, and Tiamat is represented in the text. The masters of Apsu and Tiamat are said to mix with each other, and Momu, lacking the divine determinative in contrast, is not presented as a distinct being but directly attached almost as an attribute to Tiamat. For Momu, as the cosmic mind or consciousness zeroed in the primordial state, and note that Damascus, Questiones de Mis Principi, chapter 125, referring to Babylonian informants, explains Momu as ton noiton cosmon, cosmic reason or consciousness. Momu, without the divine determinative, clearly has the meaning mind or reason. And note that there was no semantic distinction between mind, reason, or consciousness in Akkadian. For Momu, as an equivalent of the Sephira Da'at, see below, and note the definitions of Da'at as the cosmic consciousness and the door into timelessness, the edge of where time does not exist. And the reference there for this is, again, Zev ben Shimon Halavi, Warren Kenton, the Kabbalist who wrote many fabulous books, but is less strong on some of the most more definitive uh, linguistic research, such as we find in Moshe Adel and Gershom Sholem, but is very skilled in understanding the way the Kabbalistic thinking was applied to life and ourselves. The interpretation of Momu as the equivalent of zero, implied by its position in the tree diagram, is also clear from its insertion between the male and female principles. When we're regarding the Lamu and Lahamu, element. They represent the binary oppositions. It's made clear by Mesopotamian iconography where they are represented as antithetically, often upside down, posed naked figures struggling with each other or separating heaven and earth, similar sort of to the yin-yang uh, image that we see. And again, this is a universal image of these two figures of creation swirling and mixing. We see it represented by the two pillars in the temple. There's an interesting reference to an article by Lambert here, the pair Lamu and Lahamu in cosmogony. And that sounds like it's uh, worth a read from 1985. Again, so much of this research is just not even looked at outside of the rarefied fields of its investigators. And uh, especially there's a reference in that article on the nudity of the figures and referencing Genesis 3, 7 through 11. Concerning the infinite universe, Anshar and Ashur, with its negative counterpart, Kishar, the author notes, as the opposite of Ashur, endless light, Kishar must be understood as the finite physical universe dominated by darkness. It corresponds to the void created by Ensof of Kabbalah for his manifestation. Again, Halevi, Kabbalah, and all Charles Ponce, Kabbalah. And as Ashur emanated heaven, Anu, as his primary manifestation to mirror his existence to the world. Note that in this connection, the text carefully avoids using the word created or made. Literally translated, the passage reads, Anshar, reflected, Umashil, Anu, his firstborn. The idea of reflection is further strengthened by the chiastic insertion of Anu in the preceding line. For the emanation of Keter, Keter, the crown, as the mirror of Ensof's existence, see Halevi Kabbalah, page 5. On the identity of Ashur and Anu and Ensof and Keter, we have already commented a bunch on that above. Lines 21 to 24 of the Tablet 1 of Enuma Elish seem to describe the birth of the mystic number of Sin, which can be derived from the number of Ea by simply dividing it by 2. Note the passage tells that the gods, i.e. the numbers 1, 60, and 2, that had come into being thus far, 
two as the sequential number of Ia, came together and disturbed Apsu by their playing, which I think is one of the most delightful images that uh, reality is partially formed by this kind of playing of forces. This can be taken literally as referring to the play of, with numbers, by which all the mystic numbers in the tree diagram can be derived from the previously emanated values. And note for those interested in the GD, that is very much how the grade numbers work. They're not just uh, structural. They are symbolic of, of certain processes, like 5 equals 6, going from the microcosmic pentagram to the macrocosm of the hexagram. That's why we visualize the pentagram as in front of us, not around us, but as what we can know before us, and the hexagram behind us as what we can't fully know. You don't want the pentagram to be around you because then you're con contained and constrained by the conceptions of the elemental microcosm. You want it to be before you and the macrocosm behind you, so to speak. That is the symbolism of us being the, the bridge, the barrier, the, the veil, the, the liminal space that connects the two. You want to be in that hermetic place of movement between two realms. You don't want to lock yourself into one or the other. So this playing can be taken literally as referring to the play with numbers, um, as which all are emanated. But with the emergence of the number of sin, 30, the flow of emanation gets temporarily out of balance until Ia establishes a universal pattern, which is probably referring to the zigzagging pattern of the stream of emanation, and assumes a position on top of Apsu, the male principle. Ia's position on top of the right-hand male column figure 9, the binding of Mamu, referring to the pillar of equilibrium, restores balance by forming the sym symmetrical tetrad of the upper face, Anu, Ia, Sin, Mamu. The leashing of Mamu with the Ia holding the leash certainly refers to the stabilization of the propositional value 60 for Ia's number. In contrast to the number of Anu, written with the same sign, which could be read both 1 and 60. Incidentally, the fact that Ia's number in Enuma Elish is the Assyrian 60, not the Babylonian 40, confirms the late date assigned to the epic by Lambert, as in Isin 2. For more on that, see The Seed of Wisdom by uh, W.S. McCullough, editor, Toronto, 1964. The irritation of Apsu caused by this play with numbers and the subsequent killing of Apsu and leashing of Mamu seem to be an etiology, which is an explanation made later on for the way things are and how they were in the past. For the emanation of the third number and the establishment of the places of Ia and Mamu in the tree diagram, the birth of Marduk the next god in the diagram is described in the following lines as expected. Marduk's mystic number, like the numbers of all the remaining gods, can be derived from the preceding numbers by simple arithmetical operations. Note Marduk's number 50 is derived from the numbers of Ea and Sin. Ea 60, Sin 30, by the following equation. 60 minus 30 divided by 3 equals 50. The divisor 3 representing Sin's position in the order of emanation is attested as a number of Sin in the mystical work Inam Geshur. Note Ponce Kabbalah. Hesed, Marduk, is produced by the union of wisdom, Ia, with understanding, Sin. The numbers of the other gods in their order of emanation can be derived as follows. Saint Shamash, 6th, 6 divided by 3 equals 20, Ishtar, 7th, 60 divided by 4 equals 15. Nabu Ninurta, 8th, is 60 minus 60 divided by 3, or 2 times 20 equals 40. Adad, 9th, 60 divided by 6 equals 10. Nergal, 10th, 15 minus 1, or 2 times 7 equals 14. The prominent part played by numbers both in Enuma Elish and the Assyrian tree, of course, immediately recalls the central role of mathematics and divine numbers in Pythagorean philosophy. For an entire book on the Babylonian background of Pythagorean mathematics and astronomy, see Van der Werden, Die Pythagorea, Zürich, and Munich, 1979. 
The Epic of Gilgamesh. Note, in the absence of an adequate critical edition, the following analysis is based on the author's own unpublished reconstruction of the epic. The recent translations by M. Gallery Kovacs, The Epic of Gilgamesh, Palo Alto, 1985, and S. Dali, Myths from Mesopotamia, Oxford, 1989, can be consulted for general orientation. Looking at the Epic of Gilgamesh through Kabbalistic glasses, a new interpretation of the epic can be proposed, viewing it as a mystical path of spiritual growth, culminating in the acquisition of superior esoteric knowledge. The path proceeds in stages through the Tree of Life, starting from its roots, dominated by animal passion, which is the realm of Nergal, Tablet 1. Note that Gilgamesh is prominently marked as a mystic by the following features in the epic. 1. The epithet perfect, accorded to him in the Tablet 1, which qualifies him as Tzadek, very similar to Tzedek, the Hebrew word for Jupiter, just or saintly man, not born but made, partly by the assistance of God and partly by his own effort. This is Halevi, way of the Kabbalah. 2. The special technique pressing head between knees he uses for attaining dreams, Tablet 4, 3, 6, on this posture of Elijah, see Moshe Adel, my champion on uh, Kabbalah, New Perspectives. And three, the technique of weeping, fasting, praying, tablet 9, 1 through 14, he uses for achieving the paranormal state of consciousness and visions recounted in tablets 9 through 16. And again, see Moshe Adel, Kabbalah, and Dan, three types. Four, his role as revealer of hidden mystic knowledge, tablet 1, 4 through 7, 5. The recurrent references to his ascetic appearance and behavior in tablets 1 and 9 through 10, dress of skin, unkempt hair, roaming the desert, consonant with his prophetic role. Now again, on that see Moshe Adel, Kabbalah, New Perspectives. 6. The warnings he gives to Enkidu in tablet 12. So there you have the footnoted grounds upon which justify the interpretation of our our hero as a mystical practitioner. The names of the gods governing the individual stages are encoded in the contents of the tablets, and they follow the order in which they are found in the tree, read from bottom to top. Tablet 2, which has no counterpart in the tree, deals with spiritual awakening. Tablet 3 outlines the path, and Tablet 9 describes the final breakthrough to the source of supernal knowledge. Note the codes for the individual gods are as follows. Tablet 1, Nergal, the strength, animal drive, and sexual potency of Gilgamesh, the strength and animal characteristics of Enkidu, his life on the steppe, a synonym of the netherworld, his association with gazelles and the cattle gods, Shakan, his instinctive behavior and instantaneous fall to temptation by the whore as well as the length of the coitus, six days and seven nights, which ended only barely before it would have completed the number of Nergal, 14. Tablet 4, Adad and Giru, the repeated dream oracles received by Gilgamesh, the thunderstorm, fire, lightning, and bull, Adad's sacred animal, seen in the dreams, the voice calling from heaven, the fear striking the travelers. Tablet 5, Ninurta, and Nabu, the slaying of Humbaba, described in terms resembling Ninurta's battle with Ansu, and referred to as triumph in Tablet 2. Tablet 6, Ishtar, the word Dumku, beauty, in line 6, Ishtar's love affairs recounted. Tablet 7, Shamash, again, very similar to the Hebrew word Shemesh for sun. Shamash, the divine court of justice, the harsh judgment passed on Enkidu, Enkidu's appeal to Shamash. Tablet 8, Marduk, Gilgamesh's emotion and compassion for Enkidu pervading the whole tablet, the magnificence of Enkidu's funeral. Tablet 9, Mamu, penetration into the garden of knowledge. Tablet 10, Sin, the counsels of wisdom given to Gilgamesh, the role of the boat, in other words, the moon's barge, which Napishtim's reflection and pondering. Note also the assonance of Sidiru to Sin. Assonance is a 
rhyme, internal rhyming structure of vowels within a word, contrary to consonants, which is the internal rhyming of consonants within an internal structure of a word. For example, Eminem is actually famous for rhyming assonantly, um, the internal rhymes of vowels within the word, not at the beginning or end. Sidiru, the Ishtar of wisdom, is here portrayed through her veiling as the daughter-in-law of Ea, the god of wisdom. Tablet 11, Ea, the divine secrets revealed to Gilgamesh the role of Ea in rescuing Utnapishtim and granting him eternal life, the plant of life fetched from Apsu. Tablet 12, Anu, reunion with Enkidu. What's really interesting is the process described in the tablets reads like an extract from a modern Kabbalistic textbook, the appearance of a Magid, Shamat, who leads Enkidu like a god, later Enkidu himself, the recognition of one's state, Enkidu weeping, and the yearning for a higher purpose in life, the journey to the cedar forest being a metaphor for spiritual growth. See Halevi, Way of the Kabbalah. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. The goal of the journey is explicitly defined in this tablet as the destruction of evil, to be compared with the aspirant Kabbalist's struggle with the dark side of his ego. In Assyrian glyptic, killing of Humbaba occurs as the theme supplanting the tree motif in the same way as the killing of Ansu or the killing of Asaku. Tablet 9 corresponds to the Sephra Da'at, knowledge, which the psychological tree represents the gate to supernal knowledge, the point where identity vanishes into the void of cosmic consciousness before union with Keter, Halevi, Tree of Life. Another great book by Halevi I've talked about before is Adam and the Kabbalistic Tree, which looks at the Kabbalistic understanding of physiology and even specific metabolic processes. Passing through it in sometimes compared to, is sometimes compared to spiritual death. The revelation of supernal knowledge, on the other hand, is described in Jewish classical texts as a tremendous eschatological event, an event to do with end times, when the sun will shine with an overwhelming light. The act of acquiring supernal knowledge involves a change in both the known and the knower. It is presented as an active event or penetration. Moshe Adel, again, great reference there. Compare this with the penetration of Gilgamesh through the dark passage of the cosmic mountain, guarded by the scorpion man and woman and his emergence to the dazzling sunlight on the other side. The beautiful jewel garden he finds there is the garden of knowledge. It corresponds to the garden of God of Ezekiel 28.12. Associated with wisdom, perfection, and blamelessness, and, quote, adorned with gems of every kind, sardin and chrysolite, and jade, topaz, carnelian, and green, jasper, sapphire, purple garnet, and green felspar. On the association of the sephirot with jewels and the translucent colored glass vessels. See examples in Charles Ponce Kabbalah and Moshe Adel Kabbalah, New Perspectives. For a neo-Assyrian seal scene showing the scorpion man and woman as guardians of the tree, see Danthine, Palmier Datier and also the above passage in the Sefer Bahir, comparing the Sephirotic Pleroma to a garden. The late version of the epic consists of 12 tablets, the last of which is widely considered an inorganic appendage, breaking the formal completeness of the epic, which had come full circle between the survey of Uruk in Tablet 1 and the same survey at the end of Tablet 11. In reality, nothing could be farther from the truth. Without the twelfth tablet, the epic would be a torso, because, as we shall see, it contains the ultimate wisdom that Gilgamesh brought back from his arduous search for life. The wisdom was not meant for the vulgus, and it is therefore hidden in the text. 
but the epic is full of clues to help the serious reader penetrate its secret. The refrain at the end of Tablet 11 is one of these. Note, according to the prologue, Gilgamesh brought back to Uruk the ultimate sum of all wisdom, which is said to be revealed in the epic, referred to by the term Naru, Stella, in line 8. Note the emphasis placed on the word hidden in line 5. The refrain at the end of Tablet 11 is one of these, one of these hidden mysteries. So far from being something that was accidentally included and shouldn't have been part of the text that most scholars have been studying, it turns out this actually gives you the answer to the entire purpose of the text. Far from signaling the end of the epic, it takes the reader back to square one, the prologue, where he's advised to examine the structure of the walls of Uruk until he finds the gate to the secret, a lapis lazuli tablet locked inside a box. The walls of Uruk is a metaphor for tablets 1 through 11. The tablet box is the surface story, and the lapis lazuli tablet is the secret structural framework of the epic, the tree diagram. Note the lapis lazuli foliage of the tree of knowledge in tablet 9, and the unique description of the tree of life, Quote, a black Kiskanu tree grew up in Eridu, was created in a holy place. Its sheen is pure lapis lazuli, drawing from the Apsu. For the continuation, see uh, Wiedengren, King and the Tree. It sounds like a good book. Wiedengren. In addition, the conspicuous omission of the Hulupu tree theme from Tablet 12. And note there for A. Schaffer. Sumerian Sources of Tablet 12 of the Epic of Gilgamesh, Ph.D. Dissertation, University of Pennsylvania, 1963, is certainly also meant to direct the reader's attention to the tree. See the discussion below, and note that the felling of the Hulupu is referred to as a feat comparable to conquest of Ansu. That's in Cooper, Return of Ninurta. Once it is realized that the epic is structured after the tree, the paramount importance of Tablet 12 becomes obvious, for it corresponds to the crown of the tree, Anu, heaven, which would otherwise have no correspondence in the epic. On the surface, there is no trace of heaven in Tablet 12. On the contrary, it deals with death and the underworld, the word heaven, or the god Anu, not even being mentioned in it, and it seems to end on an utterly pessimistic and gloomy note. When considered in the light of the psychological tree and the spiritual development outlined in the previous tablets, however, the message of the tablet changes character. We see Gilgamesh achieving union with his dead friend, Enkidu, being able to converse with him and thus to acquire previous knowledge from him about life and death. And what is more, he achieves this reunion in exactly the same way as he did in Tablet 9, by prolonged weeping and praying. Note, if you compare this and contrast it with Moshe Adel's writing in the Kabbalah, quoting an 18th century Kabbalist, Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, quote, I performed an incantation for the ascent of the soul known to you, and in that vision I saw the souls of the living and of dead persons ascending from one world to the other through the column known to adepts in esoteric matters. See, Moshe Adel, again, Ibid, and compare this to the death of Enkidu attributed in Tablet 12 to his ethical imperfections. Note also in Adel's Kabbalah, quoting Safran's commentary to the Zohar, quote, By much weeping, like a well, and suffering, I became worthy to be transformed into a flowing stream, a fountain of wisdom. No secret was revealed to me, nor a wondrous apprehension, but afterward, I became like dust and wept before the creator of the universe like a spring, lest I should re be rejected and the light of his face, and for the sake of gaining apprehensions out of it, this source of wisdom. This passage illustrates the rationale behind the weeping technique, associating it in Mesopotamian terms with the ocean of wisdom, Apsu, and thereby with Ea. Note that it is explicitly Ea, not Enlil or Sin, who finally grants Gilgamesh his rendezvous with Enkidu.
In other words, the unique mystical experience recounted in Tablets 9 through 11, they are presented as something totally new and unusual, has in Tablet 12 become a firmly established technique by which similar experiences can be sought at will. Note on weeping in prayer as a means of attaining revelation and or disclosure of secrets, a practice that can be traced back through all the major stages of Jewish mysticism over a period of more than two millennia. See Adele's Kabbalah, New Perspectives, pages 75 and onward. It's a long section. In Jewish mysticism, such experiences are referred to as ascent to heaven or entering paradise, and regarded as tremendous events reserved only to perfectly ethical and perfectly stable men. The evolution of Gilgamesh into such a man is described in detail in Tablets 1 through 8. In the early 3rd century, Jewish mystical text Hekalot Rabati, the very concept of mystical ascent to heaven is revealed to the Jewish community as a revolutionary secret to the world. There can be no doubt whatsoever that this very secret revealing the way to heaven was the precious secret that Gilgamesh brought back from his journey to Utnapishtim. Note, the perilous nature of such experiences is constantly emphasized in Jewish mysticism. The following Talmudic story from, oh, Pearl Epstein's Kabbalah. Epstein's one of my favorites who I talked uh, about with uh, David Heimsmith, of course, and many people never read Pearl Epstein, but big fan, is told to illustrate the point. Legend relates that each of the four sages entered Pardes, that's the garden, that is embraced the mystical life. Rabbi Akiva, the oldest and best prepared, was first to achieve superconscious states. However, on his return to waking consciousness, he warned the other three not to succumb to the illusions their minds would create along the way. When you enter near the pure stones of marble, do not say, Water, water, for the psalm tells us he who speaks falsehoods would not be established before my eyes. The saintly rabbi Ben Azai gazed and died, for his soul so longed for its source that it instantly shed the physical body upon entering the light. Only Rabbi Akiva, the man of perfect equilibrium, entered and left in peace. This story immediately recalls the warnings dealt by Gilgamesh to Enkidu in Tablet 12, before the latter's descent to the netherworld to retrieve the lost hoop or driving stick. And that is not all. The passage has other important affinities with Jewish mysticism as well. The hoop or driving stick clearly corresponds to the date stone and palm branch of Jewish mysticism, where they symbolize the syzygy of masculine and feminine but especially the mystical reunion with the divine. See Gershom Sholem origins. Setting out to retrieve them, Enkidu was attempting to restore the broken unity with the divine, the very purpose of the mystical union, Idel Kabbalah. He succumbed because he, like the sages of the Talmudic story, was not morally and ethically stable enough. Thus Enkidu's descent is paradigmatic for a failed mystical ascent. Note that in the Hekelot, literature, the practice of ascension is paradoxically called descension, yerida, an idiom that has not been satisfactorily explained, though it does make a lot of sense to most of us doing uh, the practices that we do, since even when we're doing angelic work, it does tend to seem like we're going down and not up. We're going into tunnels in a way, it feels um, more on that, <laughs> of course. So the first phase in the process is the long journey into oneself, Tablet 4, involving practice of religious duties and love of one's neighbor. The goal, the subjugation of the dark side of the ego, Tablet 5, is reached with divine guidance, Shamash. The human help, Enkidu, the purity of one's soul is put to the test by major temptations, Tablet 6, and the severities of life, the death of Enkidu, Tablet 7, both tests have to be stood while still retaining a humble and compassionate heart, Tablet 8. The overall goal of the program seems to be a stepwise control over all psychic powers operative in the human soul, represented by the gods for whom the tablets are encoded. Compare this with the bird's nest metaphor of Moses Cordovero cited in Ponce Kabbalah 123. 
This certainly looks like a clearly defined program of spiritual growth, resembling the Kabbalistic and Neoplatonic strategies of conquering the vegetable and animal levels of the soul. See Halevi, Way of the Kabbalah, and Wallace, Neoplatonism. Its prominently theurgic character is well in line with the professional background, exorcist, of Sin Eik Unini, the author of the late version of the tablets. Regarding the secret of the world, uh, check out Dan, Revelation, and note especially the last paragraph of the above quoted text defines briefly the rewards of the mystic. If the person successfully overcomes the earthly inclinations to sin and observes the commandments as presented by Rabbi Nehunia, he will be rewarded by the opportunity to observe the beauty, the power, the magnificence, and the secrets of the divine world. This passage does not leave any doubt in that the author of this text realized completely the far-reaching historical and spiritual meaning of their mystical claim, Rabbi Nehunia's, is speaking about the most important and most central subject that man can know. This is indeed a gnosis of cosmic dimensions. The Etana Myth the Mesopotamian myth of Etana is well known for its central motif, a man's ascent to heaven on an eagle's back. It has thus been classified as an adventure story, or early science fictions containing the first known account of space travel. The eagle back ascent motif has been recognized to recur in Hellenistic, Jewish, and Islamic folktales and legends, and has also been connected with the Greek myth of Ganymede and the Alexander romance. Much less attention has been paid to the tree inhabited by the eagle and the snake, which figures so prominently in the second tablet of the myth. Uh, see S. Langdon, The Legend of Etana and the Eagle, Paris, 1932. Also, in addition, one may compare the story of Abu Muhammad al-Kaslan in the Arabian Nights, the Greek myth of Daedalus and Icaros, and above all, the Indian mythical bird Garuda, as spiritual vehicle for the yogis. Also concerning the tree inhabited by the eagle and the snake in the myth, it's curious that um, the recurrence of this theme in Sumerian myth and Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and the netherworld has, while been noted, the meaning of its theme, as the time of this paper was done back in the 90s, has never was never studied as a recurrent theme in the myth. It wasn't discussed at all. It was just taken as a space travel, early science fiction story. And the fact that these, the eagle and the snake were on a tree was completely discounted, which is kind of hilarious given the endemic tree symbolism from Mesopotamian mythology onward. <laughs> Without going into unnecessary detail, it can be suggested here that the tree eagle serpent theme in Tablet 2 is an allegory for the fall of man and that the ascent to heaven described in Tablet 3 is to be understood as mystical ascent of the soul, crowning an arduous program of spiritual restoration. Seen in this light, the myth becomes closely related to the Gilgamesh epic in substance, and in presenting Etana as the first man to achieve the ascent. It forcefully contributes to the notion of the Mesopotamian king as the perfect man. The tree of Tablet 2 is Etana himself, whose birth its sprouting marks. The eagle and the serpent are conflicting aspects of man's soul, the one capable of carrying him to heaven, the other pulling him down to sin and death. In Christian symbolism, the eagle holding a serpent in its talons, or beak, represents the triumph of Christ over the dark forces of the world. In Indian mysticism, the bird Garuda likewise achieves its ascent to heaven in spite of the serpents coiling around its head, wings, and feet. In the Etana myth, the eagle plays two roles. At first, it is an evil eagle, the criminal Anzu, a variant of criminal or sinner, who wronged his comrade. As such, it parallels the eagle inhabiting the Halupu tree in the Sumerian Gilgamesh epic, which is explicitly called Anzu. Later, however, having suffered and been rescued by Etana, it carries the latter to heaven. The evil aspect of the bird corresponds to the natural state of man's soul, 
which despite its divine origin is contaminated with sin. See Enuma Elish 6, 1 through 33. The second aspect of the bird corresponds to the soul of a purified man. The tree itself is marked as sinful by its species, the poplar, associated with Nergal. The deal struck by the eagle with the serpent marks the beginning of Etana's moral corruption as king. Ignoring the voice of his conscience, he becomes guilty of perfidy, greed, and murder. Note that Etana's voice of conscience is the small, especially wise fledgling of two. Note that the theme of birds' nests with the young, taken over from Sumerian uh, Lugolbanda epic and Anzu and Simber, plays a role in Kabbalah, where it is explicitly associated with self-discipline and wisdom. See Ponce Kabbalah and Sholem, origins of Kabbalah. It's not Ponce, it's Ponce. And so Etana's moral corruption as king leads to him being punished. The serpent attacks the eagle, cuts off its wings, and throws it into a bottomless pit. This is an allegory for spiritual death. The same idea is expressed by childlessness in Etana, to whom the narrative now returns. Etana's barren wife is the feminine spiritual half of the soul, corresponding to the Shekinah in Kabbalah, and the desired son of Etana's fruit, the deeds by which he will be judged. For a similar allegory, see Matthew, New Testament, 21, 19-25, Jesus cursing the fruitless fig tree. Etana's realization of his condition is the beginning of his salvation. From now on, he appears as a person referred to by his own name. Admitting his guilt and shame, he prays for a plant of birth, that is, a chance for spiritual rebirth, and is guided to the path that will take him there. Note the spiritual meaning of the prayer, concealed under the plant of birth metaphor, is made clear by the preceding prayer of the eagle, tablet 2, 121-23. Am I to die in the pit? Who realizes that it is your punishment that I bear? Save my life, so that I may broadcast your fame for eternity. In the late Turkish version of the myth, which survives in the folktale collection Bilur Kosk, the bird rescues the hero from the netherworld. So again, the crucial part here really is Etana's realization of his condition, which is the beginning of his salvation. And he now appears to be referred to by his own name, admitting his guilt and shame, praise for a plant of birth, that is a chance of spiritual rebirth, though plants can be interpreted in many ways, as we know, and is guided to a path that will take him there. The path leads him to the mountain where he finds the eagle lying in the pit with its wings cut, a metaphor for the imprisonment of the soul in the bonds of the material world. Complying with the wish of the eagle, his better self, he starts feeding it and teaching it to fly again, an allegory for spiritual training and self-discipline. It takes eight months to attempt the first ascent to heaven, which fails because Etana himself is not ready for it. The second ascent, better prepared, is successful and takes Etana into a celestial palace where he, having passed through several gates, finds a beautiful girl sitting on a throne guarded by lions. Note that the old Babylonian version, tablet I slash E8, at this point states that Etana wished to ascend to heaven to disclose concealed things. Compare this with uh, notes above, and note also Idel's Kabbalah, page 91, where, quote, he asked questions, and his soul ascended to heaven in order to seek answers to his doubts. The eagle's wings are a well-known symbol for transcendental ascent to heaven. See, for example, Rawson, Tantra, page 27. The achievement of the ascent may be symbolized by a great bird equated with the mystical Persian Simurg, this is sometimes shown in art as carrying a pair of divine lovers. And uh, the eagle, a symbol of the ascension of the Christ, the eagle was reputed to be able to look directly into the sun without diverting its gaze. It's trained its young to do likewise, rejecting those who failed. In this respect, it represents Christ who raised, raises his followers through faith to contemplate God, the source of divine light. This symbolism certainly goes back to Mesopotamia, where the eagle i.e. Anzu, was the bird of Ninurta, Nabu, and Zababa. 
The vulture is the bird of Ninurta. It is, its cry is, Hero, killed Anzu. And the vulture is the bird of Nabu. Its cry is, Hero, Hero Ninurta, killed Anzu. Note that the Christian symbolism of the cock, vigilance and watchfulness, likewise goes back to Mesopotamia, where the cock is the bird of Nusku. All of this is so reminiscent of the terminology and imagery relating to the ascent of the soul in Jewish mysticism that mere coincidence can be excluded. The several heavens and heavenly palaces through which Etana passes are commonplace in the Hekelot texts and later mystical literature. For the Hekelot text, see Sholem, Origins of Kabbalah, also Dan, Three Types, and also his book Revelation. The technical term used in these texts for the heavenly palaces is Hekalot, is alone from the Akkadian Echalu, Echalati, palace. For later mysticism, see, for example, Edel, Kabbalah, Moshe Edel, continuing the story of Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, already cited in 129 above, I asked my teacher and master that he come with me, and it is a great danger to go and ascend to supernal worlds where I have never ascended since I acquired awareness, and these were mighty ascents. So I ascended, degree after degree, until I entered the palace of the Mashiach. The girl seen by Etana is the Shekinah, the presence or beauty of God. See also Rabbi Isaac Yehudia Yahiel Safrin, cited in Moshe Del's Kabbalah, quote, And I wept many times before the Lord of the world, out of the depth of the heart, for the suffering of the Shekinah. And through my suffering and weeping, I fainted, and I fell asleep for a while. And I saw a vision of light, splendor, and great brightness in the image of a young woman adorned by, with twenty-four ornaments. And she said, be strong, my son. The girl seen by Etana is the Shekinah, the beauty presence of God. Etana's fall from the heavens has ample parallels in Kabbalistic literature where the ascent is considered a dangerous practice. And the return to a normal state referred to as being thrown down like a stone. More on that, see Edel's Kabbalah 95. Incidentally, since the fall effectively marks the end of the ascent, Tablet 3 is likely to represent the end of the myth. There is no need to assume the existence of further tablets. The heavenward ascent of Etana is already attested on seals from the Akkadian period, circa 2300 BC. That's, you know, over almost 5,000 years ago and thus antedates the earliest Hekelot text by more than two and a half millennia, and the mystical experiences of 19th century Kabbalists by more than 4,000 years. Note for more on that, see uh, R. Böhme, Die Entwicklung der Gyptik während der Akkadzeit, Berlin, 1965, and all examples are Akkadische 3, 3, in other words, Naram, Sin, or later, the dogs barking at the ascending pair symbolize envy and other vices, while earthly possessions, cattle jugs of beer and butter and cheese, etc., shown on the seals, symbolize material values left behind by Etana. On the association of material values with Nergal, and note in the Gilgamesh epic Utnapishtim, is told to leave the riches and hate possessions before embarking on the Ark. This parallel indicates that the deluge story in Gilgamesh, too, as in the Bible, is an allegory for the end of carnal men, eternal life being the share of morally and ethically perfect saintly men only. Note in this context the suffering of the goddess at the fate of her creatures, Tablet 11, which provides a perfect parallel for the suffering of the Shekinah because of the sins of the world. Note, in saying this, I do not want to stress the antiquity of the ascent phenomena in Mesopotamia. The point I wish to make is that, against all appearances, Mesopotamian religion and philosophy are not dead, but still very much alive in Jewish, Christian, and Oriental mysticism and philosophies. The tree diagram provides the key which makes it possible to bridge these different traditions and to start recovering the forgotten summa sapientia of our cultural ancestors.
That's the summation of wisdom, of course, the Summa Sapientia. And a final note, um, for the date of the earliest Hecalot texts, 2nd century through 4th century AD, see Sholem origins. And more, of course, is sometimes coming out on exact dating issues. Um, but that is for the version, the vision of Rabbi Isaac, which is mentioned above and dates to 1845. Thanks for listening to this wonderful piece. And uh, I was at the British Library in 2019 for some of the most updated information from Akkadian tablets on magic and witchcraft and legalities of their practice, which I've talked about before. But this is one of the very few pieces of its kind of research into the extent of tree symbolism and uh, spiritual allegories throughout known history. So, have a good day. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk